You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Between April 1928 and March 1929, three people from the same wealthy London family died in mysterious circumstances. The first to die was Edmund Duff, who complained of nausea and leg cramps after eating his dinner. Ten months later, his sister Vera Sidney died in similar circumstances. And just a month after her, Vera's mother Violet, an inquest ruled that at least two of the victims had been poisoned with arsenic. But their deaths remain a mystery to this day. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At the risk of veering out of my lane, we're going a little true crimey today. And it's any wonder it doesn't happen more often. I begin the research for every week's episode while watching Forensic Files, every Friday, like clockwork. I honestly don't know which day of the week it is if I haven't watched Forensic Files on a Friday. And today we're looking at incidents of that most stealthy murder method, poisoning. If you're the kind of person that really likes good resolution at the end of a true crime story where the bad guy is identified and caught and punished you're going to feel a little unfulfilled by this week's episode, because we're looking specifically at unsolved poisonings. Life is tough for the researchers who live and work in Antarctica. First, and most obviously, there's the extreme temperatures. The lowest reliably measured air temperature in Antarctica was measured at negative 128.6 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 89.2 degrees Celsius. And there's the extreme isolation. Most workers are stuck there for months at a time with precious little to do. Supply planes can only come in when the weather allows, which can mean months at a stretch without resupply. The research centers have limited medical facilities. They can handle routine problems, but if you have a genuine emergency, help is a long way away. Staff are basically at the mercy of months of darkness and extreme cold. Life in Antarctica got especially bad for 32-year-old Australian astrophysicist Rodney Marks. Marks was stationed at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station, one of the most remote places on Earth. On May 11th of 2000, Marks began to feel sick with a fever, stomach pain, and nausea. It got so severe that he went to the doctor multiple times that day, frantic over how bad he felt and how little the doctor was able to do to help him. Within 36 hours, he would be dead. May is winter in the Southern Hemisphere, which meant that Marx's body couldn't be moved back to the mainland base camp. Instead, his body had to be kept in a freezer in the observatory for six months until it could be flown back to Christchurch, New Zealand for an autopsy. Bonus fact, according to my sailor husband, when someone died on his aircraft carrier, the crew would be served ice cream because they had to make room in the freezer. It's what the man tells me. 
The other researchers at Amundsen-Scott Station expected the autopsy results to say something like aortic dissection or cardiac arrest, or perhaps something related to Marx's fondness for a drink. So it came as a shock to them when the results came back that Marx had been in good health, but had died from ingesting approximately 150 milliliters or 5 ounces of methanol. Methanol is a type of alcohol that is toxic for humans, and it's normally used in industrial applications. Ingesting methanol can cause abdominal pain and vomiting, loss of coordination, blindness, and death. The discovery of the poison set off an investigation that could said to be still going to this day. Every clue seemed to contradict every other clue, or just refused to fit in. Marx had needle marks on his arms, but no illegal drugs were found in his system. I also have to question the idea of taking a six-month supply of a needle drug to your job at the South Pole. That theory, not very practical. Some investigators suggested that Marx, driven by the loneliness and desolation of the tundra, could have ingested the methanol on purpose in an attempt to commit suicide. However, Marx's colleagues agreed that Marx's panic upon becoming so severely sick was not fake. And if he were panicking in regret of his choice of suicide, he would have told the doctor what he'd taken, if nothing else. One investigator brought up the theory that Rodney Marx could have accidentally ingested the methanol during the process of distilling his own liquor. There was a still at the station. The very first hooch that comes out of a still is methanol and should be thrown away and never drunk. But that theory was quickly shot down because the base actually had a well-stocked bar that was available to everyone. Additionally, Marx was an experienced scientist, and the likelihood that he or any of the other experienced scientists around him would risk drinking the methanol of homemade spirits is extremely low. The experience of the scientists also rules out accidental ingestion. The only presence of methanol at the camp was in a diluted form for cleaning laboratory supplies. And no one can definitively rule out the possibility that industrial methanol got into Marx's recreational ethanol somehow. But you can't prove a negative, so we'll just ride right past that. There is one wrinkle, though, that could breathe new life into one of those theories. And that's the effect of isolation on the human psyche. It's not easy being far from home, in difficult conditions, trapped in a building, unable to get away from the same few people. Imagine the worst you felt about COVID lockdown and increase it by an order of magnitude. In 2018, a Russian researcher who was feeling that strain actually stabbed another man for spoiling the ending of the book he was reading. Heartwarmingly, they later reconciled. If you've ruled out accident and suicide, that only leaves one cause of death. Homicide. Someone must have knowingly and with malice of forethought slipped Rodney Marks a lethal dose of methanol. With only 49 other people snowed in, in isolation, on the base at the time, like a game of clues set in the movie The Thing, it should have been very easy to narrow down the suspect pool. It might have been if not for the U.S. government. The land underneath the Amundsen-Scott Station has long been the source of controversy between the U.S. and New Zealand. Yep, we've even got beef with New Zealand. Merka. 
Though it is a U.S. base and most of the people who work there are Americans, the land on which it sits is claimed by New Zealand. The arrangement has caused strife before, and it bogged down the investigation. The official investigation was headed up by a man named Grant Wormald with the New Zealand Police Department. Only 13 of the 49 cooperated. Furthermore, when he asked the U.S. for information on the scientists stationed at the base, the U.S. declined to comment or help the investigation at all. Instead, the U.S. conducted its own investigation, which they didn't share with him or make public. To this day, no one knows how far the investigation went or how much the U.S. investigators were able to find out. There was one man curiously missing from both the official investigation and any subsequent research, and that's because he seems to really be missing. As far as random jerks of the general public such as myself can tell, there hasn't been any sign of the base's doctor, Robert Thompson, who fell off the radar in 2006. The mystery of Rodney Marks' death is still ongoing, as Wormald's investigation was never officially closed. However, the likelihood of finding any new information on one of the most remote and mysterious places on Earth is low. For now, the death of Rodney Marks remains the South Pole's only murder, unsolved or otherwise. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder you can't be in the u.s talking about unsolved poisonings without talking about the mother of modern murders on september 29th 1982 Seven people in the Chicago area had to be rushed to the hospital, and all died. They ranged in age from 12 to 35. Most were unknown to each other, but three belonged to the same family. They died on the same day. All seven victims had taken extra-strength Tylenol shortly before they became ill. The fact that three of the deaths occurred in one household would help investigators connect the dots. Cook County investigator Nick Pichos compared the Tylenol bottle at that family's house to the bottle from the house of another victim. Both were labeled with the same control or lot number, MC2880. Further, both bottles had a subtle but strange smell, like bitter almonds. If you've watched as much forensic files as I have, and I sort of hope you haven't, you'll know that means cyanide which can cause seizures, cardiac arrest, and respiratory failure. Blood test results would show that the victims had taken a dose that was 100 to as much as 1,000 times the lethal amount. The deputy medical examiner conferred with reps from Johnson & Johnson, the makers of Tylenol, and authorities were quickly certain that the Tylenol hadn't been contaminated in the factory in any way, but had been intentionally poisoned with potassium cyanide. Getting the cyanide into the Tylenol was not all that difficult of a process. This was not only in the days before do not use if seal is broken shrink wrap, but a lot of medications came in classic plain capsules, 
like the kind they sell empty by the bag at the health food store, which were easy enough to pull apart, shake out, refill, and put back together. Police theorize that the perpetrator bought, poisoned, and returned the pills on September 28th. It had to have been the day before the deaths or early that day, as the cyanide would have eaten through the gelatin of the capsules if it had sat any longer, and the potential victims would have noticed something was amiss. It's estimated that newspapers across the country ran over 100,000 separate articles about the incident. A nationwide panic ensued. People who believed they might have been poisoned overwhelmed hospitals and poison control centers. The company ordered a recall. Over 31 million bottles of Tylenol were pulled from shelves, and consumers who'd already purchased one with that lot number could exchange it for a new one. Johnson & Johnson also offered a $100,000 reward for anyone with information about the person who had done this. These precautions were estimated to have cost the company roughly $100 million. Because people can be the absolute worst, there were a slew of copycat product tamperings, pill and otherwise. According to the FDA, as many as 270 just in the month after the Tylenol murders. One fact that initially baffled police was that all the victims bought their Tylenol from different stores, and those stores got their Tylenol from different production plants. Labs were set up, and over 10 million recalled pills were tested. In total, 50 were found to contain cyanide across eight bottles, five of these bottles belonging to the victims. Two of the bottles had been sent back in the recall, and one was found sitting on a store shelf. No fingerprints or other physical evidence were ever found on the bottles. There was also no evidence clearly showing the killer in the store, as surveillance cameras were not all that common then, and their clarity was near pointless. So investigators had to cast not only a wide net, but a couple of them. They looked into every disgruntled employee who had worked where the tainted Tylenol was made, stored, or sold. Investigators even explored the possibility that this was some sort of white-collar crime, intent on tanking Johnson & Johnson's stock. If that had been the case, it worked a treat. Tylenol's share of the non-prescription pain reliever market dropped from 35% to 8%. Woe betide you if you'd been caught shoplifting in any of the targeted stores around that time, because you would be under a heap of scrutiny. Police also interrogated people who had been recently released from prison or psychiatric hospitals around Chicago. Hopefully just the people with a history or propensity for violence, but this was the early 80s, still not exactly an enlightened time in mental health awareness. And in a move that sounds right out of Hollywood, the police publicized the when and where of the victims' funerals, hoping the killer would show up. There were many theories and many suspects, but a few stick out even after 40 years. The first one that caught my eye was Theodore Kaczynski. Wait, you say, why is that name familiar? You might recognize him by his more sinister sobriquet, the Unabomber. The once brilliant mathematician is currently serving life in prison for killing three people and wounding 23 others with bombs sent through the mail between 1978 and 95. He saw harming random people without warning as a means to an end, making him a fit for this. Kaczynski lived in Chicago for a time, 
but, you know, big whoop, a lot of people live in Chicago. However, there is one poisoning death believed to be from tainted Tylenol that did not occur with the others, but came two months later in Sheridan, Wyoming. Sheridan is on the way to Kaczynski's cabin in Montana, where he lived at the time of the killings. To call that tenuous is being overkind, perhaps. But the FBI requested a voluntary DNA sample from Kaczynski anyway. Kaczynski wrote he would be willing to provide the sample on one condition, that the courts not allow the U.S. Marshals Service to auction off his belongings. This wasn't simply because he didn't want them getting rid of his stuff. There may have been something of exculpatory value that he would lose otherwise. But the auction went forward as planned, and Kaczynski declined to give his DNA voluntarily. Next in the lineup was dock worker Roger Arnold, who said some suspicious things about the Tylenol murders at a bar one night. The police questioned him and searched his home, and turned up several interesting connections. Arnold worked for the father of one of the victims, and one of the stores that sold tainted Tylenol was across the street from Arnold's wife's psychiatric ward. My source does not specify if it's referred to as her ward because she's an employee there or a patient. How-to crime manuals were found in Arnold's home. Remember, this is well before that weird goth kid in the corner of study hall came in bragging that he downloaded the anarchist cookbook from a Usenet group. Police also found beakers, a bag of potassium carbonate, and other evidence of chemistry in Arnold's home. He refused to take a polygraph, which is always the right thing to do because they're about as scientific as a newspaper horoscope covered in coffee, but it just doesn't look good. The following summer, Arnold shot a man outside a bar, believing the man had turned him into the police for the suspicious things he'd been saying inside. Arnold was sentenced to 30 years, but got out early on parole. Saving the best for last, the third and prime suspect was tax accountant James Lewis. One week after the first deaths, Johnson & Johnson received a photocopy of a handwritten, unsigned letter on which the FBI would find the fingerprints of James Lewis. Pretty damning, not gonna lie. The letter read, Gentlemen, it is easy to place cyanide, both potassium and sodium, into capsules sitting on store shelves. And since the cyanide is inside the gelatin, it is easier to get buyers to swallow the bitter pill. Another beauty is that cyanide operates quickly. It takes so very little, and there will be no time to take countermeasures. If you don't mind the publicity of these little capsules, then do nothing. So far, I've spent less than $50, and it takes me less than 10 minutes per bottle. If you want to stop the killing, then wire $1 million to bank account number 84495970 at Continental Illinois Bank, Chicago. Don't attempt to involve the FBI or local Chicago authorities with this letter. A couple of phone calls by me will undo anything you can possibly do. A warrant for his arrest was issued, and the ensuing manhunt would end on December 13th, after Lewis was spotted at a New York public library. Lewis's past didn't help him shake suspicion. He allegedly chased his mother with an axe when he was 19, and he was committed to a mental hospital after taking 36 aspirin, where he was diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia. Later, he tried to explain that both of these events were attempts to avoid the Vietnam draft. I guess when cross-dressing doesn't work, you've got to up your game. Points for creative problem-solving? <laughs> 
Later in his life, Lewis was charged and acquitted with the murder of a man found dismembered in his own home in the summer of 78. After that, Lewis and his wife launched a short-lived business venture, attempting to import pill-making machines from India. In 1981, Lewis was suspected of a combo mail and credit card fraud, and a search of his home turned up plenty of evidence to arrest him. Lewis and his wife fled to, guess where? Chicago, where they lived under assumed names for almost a year, bringing us up to the time of the Tylenol murders. But... The Lewises bought Amtrak tickets from Chicago to New York on September 4th of 1982, 25 days before the Tylenol deaths. Remember, the cyanide had to have been planted close to the consumption, and 25 days was just too long. Some investigators believed it would have been possible for the perpetrator, now in New York, to fly into O'Hare Airport, rent a car, plant the poison, and go back. Surveillance video from one of the drugstores did show a bearded man who vaguely kind of looked like Lewis, but it was not a positive ID, and no one could place him in the city at the right time. Ultimately, authorities never had enough to prosecute Lewis, let alone convict. However, the handwritten letter did lead to him being convicted of extortion. Lewis was sentenced to 20 years in prison, but served a little less than 13. Strangely, the bank account number in Lewis's letter didn't belong to Lewis. Instead, it belonged to a man named Frederick Miller McKay, a man Lewis believed had stiffed his wife Leanne out of $500. Basically, Lewis only included McKayhee's bank account information in hopes it would expose the theft and ultimately had nothing to do with the murders and was as petty as it was idiotic. In 2010, James Lewis published a book entitled Poison, The Doctor's Dilemma. There was an exclamation point after the poison, which he insists had nothing to do with the Tylenol murders and also stated that he regretted sending the police the ransom note. Lots of O.J. Simpson, if I did it, energy coming off that situation. Johnson & Johnson received positive coverage for its handling of the crisis. In addition to issuing the recall, the company established closer relationships with the Chicago Police Department, FBI, and Food and Drug Administration. Their market share rebounded in less than a year, a move credited to the company's prompt and aggressive reaction. The Chicago Tylenol murders directly influenced the pharmaceutical, food, and consumer product industries to develop tamper-resistant packaging, and product tampering was made a federal crime. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The state of Maine is known for a few things. Maple syrup, Stephen King, having a greater population of black bears than black people. But when I think of Maine, I immediately picture quaint small towns. New Sweden, Maine fit that bill so well it was almost cliché. Settled in 1870 by Swedish immigrants, the town has maintained many Swedish traditions, like St. Lucia's Day and Midsummer. No, not that Midsummer. I hope I didn't really check. You can sometimes still hear the older residents speak a bit of Swedish. The hamlet's population is just large enough to sustain its two churches, around 600 people. For comparison, if you've ever watched the show Letterkenny, and you should, and then immediately at me on social media so we can talk about it, Facebook and Instagram.com, Your Brain on Facts, Twitter Brain on Facts Pod. For comparison, the titular small town in Letterkenny has 5,000 people. Nothing happens in a small town. Every day like the one before. Little town full of little people, waking up to say, My legs hurt and I have trouble walking. Also, I can't feel my hands. At least that's what Dale Anderson, a retired railroad worker living in New Sweden, said. Since 2003, he has experienced severe symptoms. Leg pain that ranges from a dull ache to leaving him unable to walk. A numbness in his hands so complete that he doesn't notice if he cuts himself. And Anderson wasn't the only one. Fourteen others had fallen violently ill, and one man died. Unlike many medical mysteries, the source of the suffering was sussed out, the cause of the cases confidently conclusive. It was coffee. Specifically, coffee served to parishioners of the Gustav Adolf Lutheran Church. Those were two important traditions that the settlers brought with them, the Lutheran Church and the love of coffee. There was always a big urn of coffee in the fellowship hall after Sunday service. Some people complained that it tasted funny, but most drank it anyway. It's a behavior in coffee drinkers I often ponder on. I like mine milky and sweet because I like what coffee does for me more than the coffee itself. But the husband likes his coffee like he likes his Sabbath. Black. And I have watched him and other devout coffee quaffers punish themselves by finishing bad coffee simply because it's coffee. I can't think of another beverage that people so routinely force themselves to power through. Except maybe Fireball. But this was one time when folks would have been better pouring it out and opting for tea. By early afternoon that day in April 2003, the emergency room at the tiny 65-bed Cary Medical Center in nearby Caribou was full, with many of the cases critical. Nurses described every available surface covered in vomit basins, buckets, and garbage cans. It could not have been an easy day for anyone involved. By dawn the next day, 78-year-old Walter Reed Morrill was dead. Several other victims, including Anderson, had been transferred to the much larger and better-equipped Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor. There, doctors were able to determine that they were dealing with heavy metal poisoning. Laboratory tests confirmed it was arsenic. While arsenic is naturally occurring, it also comes in inorganic or man-made formulas. These are used in agriculture, mining, and manufacturing. Arsenic poisoning tends to occur most often in areas of dense industrialization, whether you work or live there. Groundwater contamination is the most common cause of arsenic poisoning, 
and it's most likely to happen in India, China, Mexico, and the good old U.S. of A. It's never good when we're on a list, I've noticed. Urine tests are used to check for acute arsenic poisoning, while doctors might look for evidence of long-term exposure in the hair and nails. If you have white lines going left to right on your fingernails that weren't caused by some kind of impact, please check with your GP. Long-term exposure brings the risk of a host of cancers, as well as neurological problems. Acute exposure brings on symptoms like red, swollen skin, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, cramps, and abnormal heart rhythm. Arsenic poisoning can be treated by chelation therapy, in which IV drugs bind to the metals so it can't interact with the body tissue. It sounds simple, but it's extremely painful. Anderson had to be kept in a medically induced coma for almost two weeks so he wouldn't thrash and tear out the IV. While the residents in hospital were fighting for their lives in Caribou and Bangor, back in New Sweden, there was another death. Daniel Bondesen, age 53, was found in his home with a mortal gunshot wound that appeared to be self-inflicted. He would die later that day at Cary Medical Center. What does this have to do with the church coffee poisoning? A bloodstained note was found with Bondesen's body. In it, he took responsibility for poisoning his fellow worshippers. Police refused to release the contents of the note on grounds of confidentiality, but it became public record in connection with a warrant application to search the home of Bondison's sister, Norma, who had also experienced a mystery illness. I acted alone. I acted alone. One dumb, poor judgment ruins life, but I did wrong. The first I acted alone was underlined. The note said that Bondison didn't know that what he had spiked the coffee with contained arsenic. I thought it was something. I had no intent to hurt this way, just to upset stomach like the churchgoers did me, the note continued. Investigators also said Bondison sought to retaliate against church members for something he felt they had done to him, and that it was unclear whether his reference to his own upset stomach was figurative or literal. Despite the suicide note, though, police believed that Bondison had at least one accomplice. State police detectives kept the case open, working under the assumption that there could have been additional co-conspirators. Bad gas travels fast in a small town, and rumors and suspicious glances abound. But there was no real evidence. No other bad actors could be found. Eventually, law enforcement closed the investigation. But many people in the town are not satisfied with that as a definitive answer. Anderson believes the case should be kept open until they have more information. Putting it all behind him is not really something he can do. It's hard to put it behind you, he says, when someone tried to kill you. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. In the years after the 1928 Croydon London murders, the finger of suspicion went around like a game board spinner. Was it Edmund's wife, Grace? Perhaps because she was having an affair? Or could it be Dr. Ewell, her supposed beau? Or maybe it was Tom Sidney, Violet's son, a professional entertainer who was chronically short on money. Or maybe the three died of natural causes, but had arsenic in their system because health and safety, not so big a thing in the past. Frustratingly, we'll never know. Remember, you can find source links and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. 
Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and stay safe. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>